Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week we'll be talking with mystery writers Greg Heron, whose new book in the Scotty Bradley series is Mississippi River Mischief, and Gene Redman, whose new book in the Mickey Knight series is Transitory. Greg Heron's Scotty Bradley series are some of my favorite books about New Orleans, mostly because they're so joyful and funny, but so clear-eyed about our city's fault lines. Greg is the author of 33 novels, 34 today, and he's published more than 50 short stories. That number will definitely go up. <laughs> In his day job, he works as a public health researcher for the NOAA's task force, now Crescent Care and he served four years on the board of directors for the Mystery Writers of America. Today, we're talking about his new Scotty Bradley novel, Mississippi River Mischief. Greg Heron, I'm so happy to see you. I'm always happy to see I'm you. I'm always happy to see you, Susan. You know that. I know, <laughs> especially when there's a book involved. Always. <laughs> now, back to my count, which is, could be unreliable, as you know. <laughs> This could be the ninth book in the Scotty series. I think this is number nine, yeah. So what is it that keeps you coming back to this character? Everybody wants me to. Um, It was supposed to be a standalone. It was just only supposed to be one book, but they gave me a two-book contract and wanted a series, so then I had to write a second one, and then they gave me a book deal for the third one. Then I had to write a third one, and then when I was finishing the third one, I realized that I couldn't finish the story that I was telling in the three book for his personal story, couldn't finish in the third book. So I had to write a fourth one to finish that. So you wrote yourself into an open door. Yeah. And then after the fourth, after I published the fourth one, I was kind of thought I was done. I didn't really think there was anything else to do. And then somebody asked me about it at Saints and Sinners on a panel, and I said, well, if I can figure out a way to do, and I named like three random things, if I can figure out a way to do that in a book, I'll do it. And then two days later, I realized, oh, I know how I could do that. I can do it. that became the next book. And then then I had to do The Saints winning the Super Bowl, and I had to do... Yeah. And it just kept going. It just kept going. Well, the thing is, you've given him everything you can give a character. You've given him... A quick mind, a sharp wit, a trust fund, thank you very much, (laughs) French Quarter real estate, Mm. and not one, but two gorgeous partners. Yep. And as you like to say, oh, did I mention the sex was fabulous? (laughs) (laughs) That's like your tagline, I think. (laughs) Put that on a shirt. (laughs) Well, I always, um, I I kind of, he's kind of like has my fantasy life, I think. I hope so. That's That would be like, people ask me if I'm like him, and I say, no, he has the life I wish I had. I, I wish I was more like him, not just in all the wonderful things that 
he experiences in life, but just because of, I think he has a very healthy mentality towards himself and his life that I don't necessarily have. He's very generous. He's generous? He's very generous to the people in his life. I wanted him to be a really good person. Right. That was, that was the most important part for me with creating him. Well, tell about this case. This case is a perfect example of why he is a good person. Well, it, it, it was it was funny because what I had wanted to do, how this book came about, was so weird. It was so weird. Well, they're all weird. How they all come a about bit. is weird. But I do things with my books that I do little things for myself that mm-hmm. other people don't catch. Or they do, or they just don't ever mention it to me. But for case in point, I loved Nancy Drew growing up. That's what that riverboat reminded me of. And so actually Bury Me in Shadows, which you read, mm-hmm. is the ghost of Blackwood Hall. <laughs> <laughs> that and, was fun. And then I was like, well, you know, she went to New Orleans. She did. Twice. Yeah. And I didn't realize that because I had gotten anyway. So I so I couldn't. My books are in storage. My copies are in storage. So I had to buy. I bought ebooks versions of mm-hmm. because I wanted to do the haunted showboat. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I need a wrecked showboat that's out in a bayou, out in the wetland swamp somewhere, and have all of that. And I even used borrowed the name of the estate from the book from the original Nancy Drew is the same estate that they live on yeah and this one and the family has the same name as the family in the haunted showboat I didn't know if anybody would catch on to that or not because I didn't follow the, the actual story but that image of the sunken of the sunken oh, half sunken yeah. boat yeah when they're pulling out of the by oh, don't want to give that away but when they see it when he sees it in the moonlight, yeah, it's the exact cover. I pictured it as exactly as the cover of the book. I had that book. <laughs> I, did I have several copies now. <laughs> but so I wanted to do something with that, and I wanted to do something with something that people don't really pay much attention, or doesn't seem like it's part of culture anymore. We, we don't think about it. But I had a conversation at a mystery writers convention with somebody who was a big, huge Ace Atkins, who's a huge Burt Reynolds fan, fan of Burt Reynolds, and we were talking about Smokey and the Bandit, which is one of his favorite movies. And I was was like, it always was really funny to me because I didn't live in the South when that movie came out, Mm -hmm. but I lived in the Midwest, and everyone thought the Jackie Gleason sheriff character was such a character. It's like, no, that's really what that's the way it is. Southern sheriffs are actually like, and the Dukes of Hazard kind of played into that as well with the corruption and but they made it as as funny mm-hmm. it's like well it's actually not really funny yeah <laughs> and you now wanted to write about how a family can control a small rural area so and be so corrupt and no one can do it and they have all the power they own everybody and so i was writing and i was like well i don't think anyone's going to really believe in this and then then thank god for the murdos <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there it is. There it is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it it is still exactly like that down here in the the rural parts. And thank you. And so I just kind of went with that.
If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Greg Heron, whose new book is Mississippi River Mischief. One of the things that that has come through in the last book, in this book particularly, is how Scotty and his friends care for younger gay men. Hmm. They condemn predators. They're very worried about young men coming out in the right way, making the right friends, even, you know, not being groomed, seeing the truth of relationships as they are. That's kind of holding steady as a theme of yours. Well, it a long, long time ago, I met someone, and I don't remember. It was just one of those things. So we're out having drinks one night, and it's in the, somebody talking to somebody standing next to you in the bar, and it was this young man. He was maybe 20, 21, 22. He was in a bar, so I hope he was over 21. But there were gaming machines, and <laughs> <laughs> and he was... I don't know how it came up, but he started telling me the story about when he was 13, he started seeing somebody who was a man who was in his 20s and he moved in with him because he was in a bad situation with his own family and he moved in with this man. And then when he was 18, he thought he was in love with this man and this man was in love with him and they were going to spend the rest of their lives together. And the day after he turned 18, the man brought another 13-year-old home. Yeah. And I've heard that story more than once from multiple different people. And I wanted to address that at some point. I didn't know that I would do it in a Scotty series because those books are supposed to be fun and funny and light. And that's a very heavy topic. Yeah. But, and I did not intend to do that when I introduced the nephew character. That was not, that was not the idea. But it just kind of went that way. It fit with that story and predatory. I wanted how younger gay men can get preyed upon by people who are older and manipulative and, and used Scotty to having the power. has to face the fact that, you know, a relationship in his own past yeah. wasn't what he thought it was. And that I had always meant to go back to that because that was in the second book in the series. Mm-hmm. And it, when I wrote that at the time, I had intended to come back to that again at some point and forgot. Oh. <laughs> because when I was writing the third book, I was going to deal with that in the fourth book, which was going to tie up his personal story. And I was going to rope that all in together. But Katrina happened. Whoa. And, and so there was a hiatus for Scotty that lasted like three or four years. Yeah. And by the time I came back to write the fourth book to finish the personal story, I didn't remember mm-hmm. what the book was going to origin, but I had intended the book to be him dealing with his own past. And I, I, I did. I literally, I literally forgot that that happened to him when he was a teenager. And I was rereading Jackson Square Jazz, looking for stuff for the last book, and then I came across that and said, you you never did come back to this. (laughs) (laughs) You need to come back to this now, and especially now, given what was going on in the last book, this is the perfect time Mm -hmm. to bring this back up again. And so I did. What is the most fun thing about writing these books? What is the most fun thing about writing about New Orleans? You have this joyful spirit in these books, Greg, that is just so remarkable. Well, I kind of think that's New Orleans. Oh, good. I think that New Orleans 
as all of us do, we sit around and complain about everything that's we wrong do. <laughs> with New Orleans. But I, like I always say, it's like, but we can. Nobody else better. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. And we, we love it here. And we don't belong anywhere else. We've been talking with Greg Heron, whose new entry in the Scotty Bradley series is Mississippi River Mischief. Don't miss it, Greg. And you have a new book coming out right after that, which is a killer queen mystery called Death Drop. I can't wait. I have it in my hot little hand right now. That one's a lot of fun. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Greg, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Always, thank you for always having me on, Susan. It's Love always it. a joy. It's a great pleasure to welcome J.M. Redmond back to The Reading Life to talk about Transitory, the new book, her 11th, in the series featuring New Orleans private investigator Mickey Knight. This series has been going since 1990, and Mickey was one of the early hard-boiled detectives. Jean's won many awards, including three Lambda Literary Awards, and is one of the hardest-working writers I know. She's also received critical recognition for the series she writes as R. Jean Reed, which features a small-town Mississippi newspaper editor, Nell McGraw. Jean recently retired from her job in New Orleans and moved to Milwaukee, so it will be interesting to see if there's a surge in fictional crime there. Jean Redmond, welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. It's so good to be back. So as we know, whenever we latch on to a mystery series, it's partly because of the protagonist's life. And Mickey's, you know, she's not exactly on an upswing these days. So tell no. the reader about how her life is going at this moment. When I first started the series, you know, it, it was kind of as, a, oh, I want, to, I want to write the kind of book I want to read. And then I had to pull back and say, well, what kind of person would, what kind of woman, uh, what kind of uh, lesbian would become a private eye and, and live that kind of life. And so then I had to think, you know, well, she probably didn't have, you know, a great childhood. You know, that, that sense of being a loner, being, uh, feeling like you need to take on the world because the world was never fair to you uh, when you were growing up. So I had to create someone who is struggling with some demons. Uh, you know, the, as Faulkner said, the past is never past. It's, it's past is never gone. It's not even past. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for many of us. So I felt like, okay, what do I do with this character? And I tried to be as realistic about some of the struggles that people have, the demons that we fight. Because one of the interesting things to me is how do we find justice when we're very imperfect people? Mm-hmm. How do we choose to do the right thing instead of the expedient thing or the comfortable thing? And how do people, even when they're flawed and, and messed up and being pulled in different directions, how do we make those kind of choices? And I wanted to make her the kind of person who will stumble and fall sometimes and not always make the right choices, but mm-hmm. usually manage to pull through by the end of it. And I've also um, had her age because I am. She shouldn't get out of it. <laughs> and so she, we all know, are, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, as you well know, yeah, we all are. Fortunately for her, she is fictional, so I can be a little bit gentler in how quickly mm-hmm. the years pass for her. They're not as relentless as every single anniversary. It's another year. Um, so she's starting to confront some of the later middle-aged crises of where am I with my life? You know, she was in a relationship. It fell apart. Does she want another one? You know, what does she want to do? You know, and, and as she said, I think at one point in the book, is it too late to ask these questions? Yeah. That's a question everybody asks eventually, too, you know? Yeah. Uh, so this book begins with a spectacular act of violence. And it's really a terrible reminder of how close street violence is to all of us in New Orleans today and everywhere. And yeah. accompanying that violence is an act of profound disrespect for the victim that pushes yeah. Mickey into action. This is really a stirring opening it's really so powerful, that moment. So I want you to talk a little bit about writing that. Well, you know, books take a long time to write. You know, well, for me, I don't, I don't sit down in front of a computer and say, oh, let me start a book and figure it out. Um, as you mentioned, I did retire from my day job, but my day job was working at um, what, it, what was no AIDS task force and is now Crescent Care. And I oversaw the prevention department, which did a lot of work with the community and particularly the LGBTQ community. And uh, about five or six years Seven years ago, I think, we were part of a study that was the CDC looking at behavioral risk factors for what they call vulnerable populations. And we were uh, given funding to look at the transgender population in New Orleans, which, you know, I'm part, I, I am part of the LGBTQ community, but we all live different lives and there are different, different, you know, different ways of looking at it. So we ended up really doing some deep dives into the New Orleans transgender community. And I started writing this book before it was so much of a headline, mm-hmm. but it was just sort of that we're seeing the violence among against transgender people, particularly uh, African-American transgender women. And it's getting sort of dismissed, like they're dismissible people. And I, I felt really angry that anyone should be dismissed and I felt like I can tell stories and and maybe I should work at telling this story it's scary for me because again I am not a transgender individual um but I felt like if if we don't imagine if we don't write about things if we aren't willing to say it if we aren't willing to look at it then 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 we leave the stories to only the people who are stuck living in them if those of us can't say hey People unlike me are important, and as a writer, I need to push myself to try to be a good enough writer to write about them and make sure the world includes everybody that should be included. Well, you're very generous in that way in that you had Mickey make some missteps with, you know, terminology or or just expressions and be corrected. Yes. And then go, oh, I see. You know, so even if you are part of the community, you don't know everything. No, no, you don't. And I wanted to kind of show that, that again, that, that we, none of us are absolutely perfect, particularly when it comes to people that are far outside of ourselves. But we should be willing to learn, willing to admit our mistakes and say, oh, I, there are terms that are respectful. And it doesn't cost me anything to use them because it's just a word. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to use the word anyway. I might as well use the respectful word. I mean, there's so many ways that, that we can be kind and generous. We just have to know how to do it. And, I, again, I wanted to model Mickey as someone who is absolutely imperfect. She does live in her world. She, As she said, she was raised in a, um, 
in a white household. She's considered, you know, her, her background is white, and that carries with it its, its burdens and, and, and stuff. Um, she's not transgender, and she admits she doesn't know the community as well as she perhaps should. And I think I wanted to kind of model that for other people to be able to say, you know, it's okay to not be perfect, but I should keep trying to improve. One of the great things about Mickey and her community is that she has a car and she is happy to drive people places, you know, Uh (laughs) which is such a fundamental human thing. You know what I mean? Right. Of course I'll give you a ride. We take some things for granted because they're for granted in our lives, Mm -hmm. you know, that that you have a car that, well, of course you can, you know, you have some money in the bank, you can afford bus fare, you can afford these things, you can afford the, you know, the, the ride shares or whatever. And for the people that don't have them, for the, for whom this is a struggle, oftentimes they, they can be um, left behind. And I think Nikki is, I try to at least make her somewhat aware of the resources that she had, that she does have friends in the police force that she knows and can trust. And, and you know, a lot of the book is her trying to be a go-between between the communities that will not work with the police, that do not trust them, but are still going to need some form of justice, some form of being protected. And, and she's trying to thread that needle um, between the, 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 the disparate uh, points of view. Well, I love the way she'll chime right in and work on the fundraiser and go to the march, you know, and just be yeah. there and do it, you know. But on the other hand, I will say this. She is a little bit of a wonk at times, you know. She loves, and I like this, so don't take yeah. that as a criticism. Yeah. Okay. But it's like, as a detective, she likes to tell you how it's done. Yeah. And so you do learn an awful lot, I mean. Right. And it's, well, you know, it's, it's it's fun. You know, it's always, again, for a writer, I, I feel as a writer, you know, my, my goal is to try to walk a very fine line between the obscure and the obvious. Yeah. Do I tell the reader enough of what they need to know to be able to figure out what's happening? I don't want to tell them too much because otherwise it's like, all right, yeah, I know, I know, I know. It, it, and it, it, you never get it perfect. You know, it's always trying to do that. But I wanted to see, you know, that Mickey is uh, a private eye. She's a professional, that there are things that private eyes do and that they can do and that they think about. And, you know, that uh, her professional life is very important to her and being good at it. And so I wanted to see the reader, you know, that that. For example, you know, that, that one of the things she does is she looks at security tape from some of the bars, and it's a tedious, long process. So, again, mm-hmm. I didn't want to show have hours and hours and hours, but I wanted to show that it took hours and hours and hours to get to that little place where it's like, oh, I'm seeing something that is unusual or could be useful in terms of how we're, we're going to solve this. Well, I wondered if you did that partly because you were one of the early ones with a hard-boiled woman detective. You know, and it's it's hard for me to even think about that because, that well, funny? I don't want to be that old, first of all. Oh, come on. Um, yeah, but I, I guess I was, you know, that, that we were so much fighting our way in the world. And, and you know this, too, that for women, let alone the queer community, to find a place, again, it's the institutions. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people that opened doors, uh, you know, Sarah Perewski, uh Barsha Muller, Sue Grafton, who were starting mm-hmm. to write about these. And I felt like, okay, I'm going to write about them, too. And they seemed to be light years in front of me. And I was like, well, I'm just doing what they're doing, um, just putting my own spin on it. So I didn't feel like a pioneer. But I guess if you look at in terms of longevity and really when things started, well, maybe I am. We've been talking with Jean Redman, whose new J.M. Redman novel is transitory.
Don't miss it. Jean, thank you so much. And Susan, thank you. Thank you for everything. Here's what's on tap in the literary life this week. The Jefferson Parish Library holds its annual Children's Book Festival beginning at 10 a.m. Saturday, December 2nd at the East Bank Regional Library. The opening event is the panel featuring Freddie Evans, Michelle Jackson, and Denise McConduit, moderated by me. Among the other authors scheduled to be on hand are Karen Connorth, Louis Duet, Laura Roach-Dragon, M.H. Herlong, Leah Eskin, Laura Michaud, Gideon Hodge, and Gary Olipio. Shannon Atwater signs Goodnight Potholes Saturday, December 2nd from 11 to noon at Octavia Books. Madison Webb, author of Mardi Gras in New Orleans, and Patricia Austin, author of Elephant of Sadness, Butterfly of Joy, sign books Saturday, December 2nd at 11 a.m. at Garden District Bookshop. Aaron Hoover, author of No Spare People, and Cabrisma Price, author of I'm Always So Serious, appear in conversation in signed books Sunday, December 3rd at 4 at Blue Cypress Books. Maddie Lubchansky signs her new graphic novel, Boys Weekend, and appears in conversation with Jamie Attenberg, Monday, December 4th at 6 at Blue Cypress Books. John R. Green, author of French Quarter Saints, Rebecca Gernon, author of The Sunflower Letters, A Mid-Century Life of Discoveries, and Xavier DeSoto, author of Mardi Gras Madness, along with John Lopez, author of Blind in Two Eyes, discuss their new books Tuesday, December 5th at 7 at the East Bank Regional Library in Metairie. Jess Armstrong signs The Curse of Penrith Hall Tuesday, December 5th at 6 at Garden District Bookshop. Elise Speranza discusses and signs The Italian Prisoner Thursday, December 7th from 5.30 to 6.30 at Ladder Library. Mark McGrain reads from and signs his poetry collection, Etched in a Time of Reckoning, Thursday, December 7th at 6 at Octavia Books. Dion Ford signs Go Back and Get It, a memoir of race, inheritance, and intergenerational healing, Thursday, December 7th at 6 at Baldwin & Company. This is a ticketed event. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Ingmeyer and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at WWNO.org. And you can email us at the Reading Life at WWNO.org.